Morning, church family. Take your seats. My name is Daniel. It's good to be with you. I have the privilege and honor of preaching this morning. I'm eager to preach. It's been two weeks, and I've got two weeks of sermons that have built up in that time. So let's settle in and uh, get ready to, to hear. If you haven't already, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to the passage that was just read aloud to us. Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. Uh, My prayer before we get into the passage is that God would speak to us this morning through his word, that I would be faithful and uh, committed to the scriptures themselves, and that by the power of the Holy Spirit, that your affections would be stirred up for Jesus, uh, for his glory, and and for our joy. I pray that God's word would encourage you and exhort you, but would also correct us and, and you and me. Because... I I believe in the human condition that we all need correction. Whether we think we do or not, and whether we like it or not, we we need correction. We know it would be unwise for a parent to say, my kid is perfect. He or she never needs discipline or correction. Right? That would be foolish, wouldn't it? I'm getting kind of blank stare, so I don't know if, if, if that's the attitude that we have. Because otherwise, we'll put a pause on this sermon and go into parenting. We need correction, and I think it's unwise for us to think that somehow we'd grow out of that need. Like as as we grow up and we're not kids anymore. The the Bible says this in Proverbs 12.1. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. Okay? Like, I think the Bible is a pretty clear book. That's a pretty clear verse. We need discipline, we need correction. And we not only need correction, but we need the level of correction to match the severity of our wrong if we want to change, right? Like we know those parents who their kids are totally unruly and misbehaved and they do whatever they want and the parents are like, I don't know, what's wrong? My kid's so misbehaved. There's no discipline and, and the level of discipline when maybe they need something severe is like a little slap on the wrist. And we know this in the workplace too, right? There's, there's certain offenses and wrongs that we do that require a slap on the wrist, and there's others that require a firing. And what Paul does in Galatians is not a slap in the wrist to, Galatians, to the Galatians. What, what their offense and their wrongdoing in this, in this situation, in this context, is not worthy of a light slap on the wrist. He's getting in their face, he's using some harsh language, and he's trying to call them back because of the dangerous situation that they're in. Right, like when my daughter Addison, when she does something wrong, like maybe she spills a cup of water on accident and it gets everywhere, that's annoying, but was she trying to do that? Maybe or may not. I'm going to respond totally different if she's playing with a knife or she's running in the street, right? My tone's going to be different. The severity of my correction is going to be different. And this is what we see with Paul. His spiritual children, the Galatians, they're not spilling cups of cold water, They're playing with knives. They're running in the street. They are in a dangerous condition. And some of the language that we see in Galatians 3, 1 through 9 signifies just the passion and the dangerous condition that they're in. What we found in the book of Galatians is that Paul is writing to confront the foolishness of what they have, what's happened to them. So Paul came to Galatia, he preached the gospel, salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, they believed it, they received the Holy Spirit, they became Christians, and then somewhere along the lines after Paul left town, some false teachers came in, and they said, it's not just faith alone, there's works, works matter, 
And if you want to be accepted by God, if you want to be counted righteous, you have to do things. You got to be circumcised if you're a man or obey the ceremonial laws. It's not just faith alone. And from this position, Paul writes this letter. And up to this point, we've covered what in our modern day Bibles is the first two chapters. And Paul has described that he's so astonished that they're quickly deserting the gospel. Because to leave the gospel is to leave God and who, who called them in grace. He then spends the next two chapters defending his apostolic authority and his gospel in order to show you know, this is the one true gospel. There's no other gospel. And then last week, uh, Nathan looked at Galatians 2, 15 through 21, which kind of includes the, the central thesis of the book. And Galatians 2, 16 is, is probably one of the central messages of, of the book. It says, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Paul continues, so we also believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. He continues in verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me and the life I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. And immediately after this verse, Galatians 3.1, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Now this could be translated, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? And this is a strong word, right? This is, this is not just like what we might think of a fool as, oh, you idiot, or we might think of a fool as someone who lacks sense, or they're unintelligent, or they're a stupid person. In biblical terms, a, a fool was a much stronger, it had deeper meaning. A fool was someone who lived as if there was no God. Psalm 14 says, uh, the, A fool is the one who says in his heart, there is no God. Fools take no pleasure in understanding. And there's a difference in the Bible between being wrong and being foolish. Someone who's wrong can correct their mistake and learn from it. A foolish person doesn't care. A foolish person repeats the same mistakes again and again. And probably one of the most vivid depictions of a fool in Proverbs 26:11, it goes like this. As a dog returns to its vomit, so fools repeat their folly. Okay, this, is a, this is a strong language that Paul is using here. And he's using it not because he's trying to maliciously attack their character, but he's using this strong language to show them what they're doing. They're acting as if there is no God. They're, they're disregarding God's word and God's wisdom. And he pairs this foolishness with another word, bewitched. And this is a word that connotates pagan, evil, witchcraft. So to say that you're a fool and you're bewitched is like, you know, two slaps to the face. Like, wake up, Galatians. Realize what you're doing. He's using the strong language as a way of, you could say, okay, counteracting the spell that was cast upon them as they were bewitched, as a way of showing them if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. And if by the works of the law, no one will be right by God. If you are trying to live by works to be right by God, you're foolish. Does that make sense? See what Paul's putting down here? After Paul asked this question to kind of wake them up and get them to see their, their situation, he says, it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed 
as crucified. And what Paul's going to do in verses 1 through 5 is he's going to try to remind them of their salvation experience, of when they received the Spirit and how they got saved and and what brought that about. But it's only by faith. And then he's going to go in in verses 6 through 9 and prove that people of God have lived by faith from the forefather of the faith, a guy named Abraham. So that's where he's going. He's going to hit at their experience and from the scriptures in this passage. So he goes, uh, it was before your eyes. He's getting back to their experience that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. And it's not as though Paul is saying that they literally saw Jesus crucified. It's more metaphorical. But what Paul is communicating here is that the preaching of the gospel was so powerful that by the Holy Spirit, it painted a picture that they experienced with their, the eyes of their heart, their spiritual eyes, the vivid and clear portrayal of Christ crucified. Crucified meaning it's finished, debts paid, the blood shed for forgiveness of sins accomplished, meaning righteousness is by the crucified Jesus. The meaning of Jesus's death on the cross has been purchased through the blood of Jesus, and the message was made so clear to you that it was if you had seen Jesus crucified yourself. That's what he's talking about. And I think this is a a cool kind of description and and verse about the power of preaching the gospel in the Holy Spirit. This This is what happens. Through the Holy Spirit, the gospel is preached, and Jesus becomes real to us. Jesus crucified becomes vividly portrayed to us. Paul is reminding them he didn't come to Galatia with a 14-point PowerPoint lecture. And he monologued about some dead guy from Nazareth. He came preaching in power Christ's crucifixion. And it did something. They were moved. They responded. They received the Holy Spirit. And then Paul lists what I count as five questions in verses 2 through 6. And we know when, when you ask someone a question... A lot of times they're asking for new information or new details, right? Like, what's your favorite color? Or what'd you do last weekend? Or what's on the menu today? But there's another kind of question that's often used, and that's called a rhetorical question. And you guys know this. But the, the point of a rhetorical question is not to somehow elicit a response, but to cause someone to think, to prove a point. And this is what Paul is doing in all of these questions. He says in verse 2, Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the spirit of the law by hearing with faith, oh, excuse me, see the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Verse 4, did you suffer or experience so many things, if indeed it was in vain? Verse 5, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and work miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? And all of these questions are getting them to see the same thing. It was by hearing by faith. This is how, through the proclamation of the gospel, the Galatians received the Spirit. Because these Galatians, who were most likely Gentiles and probably hadn't even heard of the law, weren't observing the law, received the Spirit simply by faith. And he's reminding them of that experience. You weren't obeying the law. You weren't observing the law when you received the Spirit. You received it by faith. So why do you think now you can somehow move on from faith? And then in verse 6, like I said, he shifts from reminding them of their experience to uh, talking about Abraham, the father of the faith. He says this, just as Abraham, quote, believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, you do, where we notice that in that believed God to righteousness is in quotation marks. And what Paul is doing here is he's citing 
Genesis 15, 6. And this is a significant and important theological or scriptural defense of salvation being by faith alone because Abraham was counted as righteous simply by faith. He had not been circumcised up to this point. It's not until later in Genesis 15. So to claim circumcision is necessary for righteousness or for acceptance is contrary to even how Abraham was counted as righteous. Paul, uh, in my studies this week, it seems like Paul kind of goes to Abraham here because it's quite possible that the false teachers who came in after Paul, who were of Jewish background, who were claiming that the gospel uh, by faith alone was not sufficient, were claiming, well, we are the sons of Abraham. We are Jewish by birth. We are circumcised. We are keepers of the law. We are accepted by God. So if you want to be accepted by God, you have to become like us. You need to be circumcised. If you want Abraham as your father, if you want to be blessed through Abraham, you must be like us. And Paul is destroying that argument. Abraham was a man of faith. He was counted righteous by his faith. So what he says in verse 7, Know then that it is those of faith that are sons of Abraham. In the scriptures, foreseeing that God would justify or account righteous or accept the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So here's what Paul's saying. The sons of Abraham are not merely those who are by physical or blood lineage. They include both Jews and Gentiles, all people from any nation who live by faith just as Abraham did. It is by faith that we are counted righteous, not by those who obey the law. It is by hearing by faith. And so you know, if, we've been, if you've been with us as we've been studying through the book of Galatians, that we've been asking five questions of the text each week. And there's five questions that are kind of served to frame our sermons. They're the five questions that are found in that handout that you should have received on your way in from the greeters, or maybe uh, Emmerich yelled out to you and, and you got one from Emmerich. Uh, but the first question in the handout is, what does the text say? And, and simply put, Paul is saying in the text that the salvation of the Galatians, their own experience, and the example of Abraham, that being counted righteous, being saved, being accepted by God is by faith. It's hearing by faith. So then when we look at that second question, what does the text mean? We're looking at what, how do these, the truths that are found in this passage, how can we apply them? What are the truths that are found in this passage and what do we do with it? Like, what does that mean for us? And, and I think it means that, uh, as Paul says, we begin with hearing the gospel by hearing with faith and you never move on from hearing the gospel with faith. Because to move on from the gospel, to move on from faith, is foolishness. It's counting Christ's death as, as no purpose. This means that the very way that we become a Christian, by hearing by faith, we receive the Spirit by hearing with faith, we see Jesus publicly and clearly portrayed as crucified by hearing by faith, we not only become a Christian by hearing with faith, but we continue day by day by faith. That's what I think the text means. 
In other words, Christians never move on from faith. They never move on from the gospel. They never leave faith in Christ. They never leave dependence on the spirit. They never leave this behind. Notice how Paul connects becoming a Christian and growing as a Christian. He asked, did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith in verse two? And the clear answer, Christians receive the spirit by hearing with faith. And a way to think about this, this phrase, hearing with faith, is hearing of the gospel accompanied by faith. Right? This is how they received the Spirit, the one who was promised to come and indwell God's people and cause them to obey and give them new hearts. This all happened by faith. And then he says a similar thing later in verse 5. It says, does he who supplies the Spirit to you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? And I think this is Paul's way of of saying the same thing from a different perspective, like from God's perspective. In other words, does God give the Spirit because you obey the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Of course, the clear answer there again is by hearing with faith. But then look at the connection of how he continues that in verse 3. He asks, are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? He's essentially asking, are you trying to be perfect, attain your goal, accomplish being perfect by the flesh? And the way that he uses flesh here is a little different than how Paul used it earlier in Galatians 2.20. In Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. The word flesh here is more signifying like bodily uh, experience, physical experience. Whereas when Paul says, are you trying to be perfected by the flesh, this is a reference to human self-reliance and self-dependence. I came across this definition this week in regards to the flesh. I think it's helpful. It says, flesh is any human action or achievement without dependence on the Holy Spirit and without glorifying in Christ Jesus. That's what Paul's saying here. Did you begin receiving the Spirit by faith, and now you think that you can somehow leave the Spirit who helps us live by faith and seek to be uh, perfected or, or grow or mature by human achievement, void of the Spirit, void of glorifying in Jesus. This means that to say, okay, I've believed the gospel once, and I've received the Spirit, and it, yeah, it was all by faith, but now I'm going to grow. I'm going to work. I'm going to be perfected by my efforts, by what I do, by my works of the law, by my flesh, foolishness. From the text, we see that hearing the gospel by faith is not only the way someone becomes a Christian, but the way to live day by day as a Christian by faith. To start by faith and to move on to works is foolishness. Now, I think in this moment, it would be dangerous for us to say and prideful for us to think that we are so different from those Galatians. It's prideful and dangerous for us to think and say, yep, nice work, Paul. Those foolish Galatians, those idiots. These strong words from Paul were probably the hardest pill to swallow. You imagine the Galatians hearing these words being read aloud to them. But when we see Paul's passion and urgency and great love, it could, it should cause us to reflect on our own foolishness. This is how we seek to answer question three. How do we naturally resist what the text says 
and means. Because if we are justified by faith, we're made right by faith, we're accepted by God by hearing with faith, and if we are to continue to grow as Christians, not by leaving the gospel behind, not by leaving faith behind, not by leaving the spirit behind, but by moving deeper into those realities, we resist this by doing the same things the Galatians do in this passage. Galatians 3, 1 through 9 shows us that Christians are very capable and prone to move, to think they can move on from this. And I believe that we are prone, just like the Galatians, to the same foolishness, to think. And we are prone to fall into those same spell of the false teachers, to seek to be perfected by the flesh, to seek to boast in our spiritual lineages and traditions, assuming that we are gods because of the things that we do for him. The Galatians may have thought that they advanced beyond the simple elementary Christian teaching of faith. But in reality, what they were doing is they were leaving Christianity altogether. And their problem was that they had stopped hearing the gospel. They had stopped believing in the gospel. And when you start hearing, you stop hearing and stop believing in the gospel, you shift from being perfected by the spirit to be perfected by the flesh. And friends, I think we do this all the time. The very second that we believe we must do something to earn God's acceptance and favor. The very second we believe that by our human achievement and effort that we have become a Christian and we grow as Christians, the very moment that we think, well, if I could just clean up my life, God would accept me. We are so foolish. And we resist this truth because we don't hear or believe the gospel and we think that to be accepted, we have to do something. Whether we want comfort, our approval, our control, we take matters into our own hands. We take matters into our flesh to give us what we think we need. And everything around us reinforces this message, doesn't it? You get what you earn. The people who get, you want to get promoted? You got to work. You want those raises? Those people earn them. You want, to, you want love? You want to receive love from your spouse or your wife? Got to do something for her. And this worldview and paradigm leads to great despair when we can't get what we want or we think that we should earn. And it leads to great pride when we do. When we earn what we want, this leads to become very boastful in ourselves and we take pride in our own achievements because we did them. I look good. Look what I did with my life. But if we trust in our efforts and human achievement to become accepted by God and to grow. Christ is not getting the glory. Christ is not looking like the hero. Christ is not being magnified. And the reason that the Spirit was given, according to Jesus from John 16, 14, is to glorify Jesus. So we naturally resist Galatians 3, 1 through 9 when we fall into the same foolishness as the Galatians by filling our ears and our hearts with so many false teachings and messages and we only hear human words. The quality and the quantity of our hearing is not focused on God's word, his gospel, his promises. We are slow to hear from God, but we are quick to listen to humanity. We're quick to take the messages of the world and the words of man, but we're slow to hear from God and, and his promises. And we can be so foolish and stay in our foolishness too, even when we read our Bibles, we hear a sermon, we listen to a podcast, we study theology, we read a book, we get convicted, and then we think, I got to get out of this by doing something, right? 
I got to do it in my own strength, my own works. My, I got to be perfected by the flesh. And we won't get out of what led us into that situation by doing the same thing. Right? The old saying, you don't fight fire with fire. You don't fight unbelief. Excuse me. You fight unbelief with the gospel. You fight the flesh with the spirit. You fight the foolishness of humanity with the wisdom of God. You fight the works of the law with getting our hearts set before the faith-inspiring message of God in Christ. We must continually come back to Christ. This is where we make much of Jesus in question four. How do, how do we answer question four? How is Jesus the hero? How did he accomplish or do the thing we naturally resist? Right? If the only way to be made right with God, to be counted righteous, to be accepted is through faith, and yet we naturally resist that, we take matters into our own hands, we ignore and don't believe and stop hearing and trusting in the gospel, we are hopeless and helpless apart from Christ. And the way that we change and grow is by continually looking at him, who Hebrews 12.2 says, Jesus is the founder and the perfecter of our faith. Jesus was the man who we continue to look at him and our faith grows in his strength. And Jesus, the one who was perfect in faith, the God-man who perfectly believed God and trusted God and followed him, even though his family uh, abandoned him, his disciples doubted him, his friends denied him, the Jews, his own people rejected him, tried him, and sentenced him to death. Jesus believed the Father and held true to God. Jesus, who experienced the acceptance and love of God perfectly and never moved on from this. It's significant that when Jesus began his public ministry, the writers of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all record Jesus being baptized by John, the Holy Spirit descending upon him, and a voice coming from heaven This is my Son, with whom I am well pleased. Before Jesus did anything in regards to public ministry, And it's from this, this filling of the Holy Spirit, this declaration of who he is, that Jesus begins his ministry. He starts preaching the gospel, saying, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. The king is coming. The kingdom of God is coming near. I'm about to change everything. Then he teaches that the same spirit that fell upon him will fall upon those who who follow him. This promised Holy Spirit who was promised from the prophets in the Old Testament who would come and make his people come alive, make them follow him and want to love God. Jesus promises to send this same spirit. And he ushers this spirit in what is called the consummation or the fulfilling of the new covenant that the Holy Spirit would come and indwell his people. And he did this in in significant way and in the prediction of this in what's called the Lord's Supper. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he had a final meal with his disciples as they were celebrating the Passover meal. And he took bread and he gave thanks and he broke it and he gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then in the same way, he takes the cup. And after they had eaten, he said, this cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. This is what Jesus is saying. This spirit that was promised from the Old Testament that I have promised to send to you, I am about to purchase the new covenant in my blood. That's what I'm about to do. And then he does it. He's betrayed. He's sentenced. He, he goes to a cross. He's flogged. He carries the, the cross to a place that's called the skull, Golgotha, and he's lifted up. 
And on the cross, Jesus' blood is spilled, it's shed for the forgiveness of sins, for the purchasing of this new covenant. Jesus becomes that sacrifice on our behalf. And as his blood is shed out and spilled, he, well, he's already dead when his blood shed, but he, he dies on the cross. He's taken off of the tomb and he's, of the cross, and he's placed in a tomb, and, and the stone, a heavy stone, is rolled over the tomb. But after three days, the stone is rolled away. And Jesus demonstrates what his power is really like. That there is life after death. That even death could not hold Jesus back. That he has conquered sin, Satan, and death. And then that same spirit that he promised to send to his followers, after he ascends, falls on his people. And crazy things start happening in Acts. Like these timid fishermen who are scared up in an upper room, they go out and they start dying for Jesus. They start getting stoned for Jesus. And not in the Seattle way. Like stoned and like died. These, these followers of Jesus become bold and they start proclaiming the same message that Jesus did. Repent and believe the gospel. And Jesus makes all of this possible. The spirit that indwells anyone who receives the gospel by faith, who makes us new, who causes us to obey him, it's only by faith. And Jesus has accomplished this. That's how he's the hero. That's how he makes it possible. He is the one who makes living by faith possible because of the spirit he purchased with his blood and the spirit he sends to all those who trust and believe in the gospel. And this empowers us to change and to live and to grow. We look at question five, how does that empower me to obey what it says and means? The text shows us that when we receive the spirit, when we are saved by hearing, by faith, yet we don't, like we resist it, we don't, we continually fall back into our flesh Jesus did it perfectly. Jesus sent the Spirit to help us, and the Spirit continually points us back to Jesus. And as we look at Jesus, that's how we change and grow. So my friends, if we have received the Spirit by responding to the gospel by faith, do you know that the same words that rang from the Father in heaven of his Son Jesus are true of you? That when the Spirit comes upon us and indwells us, just like it did to Jesus, those words that rang out, they should ring out in our ears, you are my beloved child. I'm pleased with you. By faith. We don't do anything for that. You don't do anything for God's love. It's by faith. We don't move on from that. To try to take matters into our own hands, in our own weak and feeble flesh, it's foolishness, my friends. We come back to Jesus and we gaze upon his beauty and we let the words ring out from heaven of God's promises. We are his beloved and he is pleased with us because of Christ. The same way we become Christians is the same way we grow as Christians. We continually hear the gospel, the message of Jesus. We trust in Christ and we pray that just becomes more real and more real to our hearts. Because I believe that to the degree we see Jesus Christ clearly portrayed as crucified, 
We set him before the eyes of our hearts to the degree that we trust by the Spirit and we take the meanings and the implications of the gospel deeper and deeper into our hearts. We realize what has already been accomplished in Christ. That's how we grow. That's how we mature. We, we will never want to move on from the gospel because even when we do, we've tasted how sweet Jesus is. Like no one loves me like that. No one accepts me like that. So even if we turn from him and move from him, things just become sour. They might seem sweet at first, but they quickly turn to ash in our mouth. This is how we progress and we grow. We come back to the cross. And I think practically it can play out in our lives like this. When you're hit with a sharp critique, a mean comment or a dirty glare, someone's rude to you or mean to you, you take that as a, rem- as a reminder in that moment to believe Jesus is better. I'm loved and accepted in Christ. Jesus will never let me go. Jesus is with me. I am loved and accepted. In that very moment, we believe that. Or, wives, when your husband is failing to serve you and he seems so self-absorbed and unaware of your desires and your feelings. Don't ask me how I know that. In those moments, you cling to Christ. You trust, you speak the gospel to your heart, and you say, Jesus has served me perfectly. He has provided all that I need. He satisfies my deepest needs. He will never leave me nor forsake me. He is always with me. In those moments, we apply the truths of the gospel. Because I don't think our problems in this life are because we think we just need to try harder. That's, that's not how we grow, by trying harder. We grow by believing more deeply, by trusting more fully, by resting in God's promises more deeply. This is how we fight sin and unbelief and grow as a Christian. The, the scriptures teach us, Romans 10, 17, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Other trans, translations say it like this. So faith comes from what is heard and what is heard comes through the message about Jesus. There's two quick applications we can take from this passage. Number one, from this realities and these truths of the passage, how we see Jesus is better, this empowers us to give ourselves to the faith-inspiring, faith-sparking, faith-arousing, faith-igniting Word of God. We saturate ourselves by hearing the gospel proclaimed, by rooting ourselves in God's promises, and we seek to get the promises of God deeper into our heart that we use like arrows in our quiver to pierce and to fight off the doubt and the discouragement and our unbelief. Number two, we commit ourselves to communities of faith. Those individuals who have been created and joined to us by faith in Jesus. Those individuals who we need to encourage us in the faith, to speak truths of the gospel, to apply God's promises to our lives. As we know, we have blind spots in ways in which we are unaware of our unbelief. And we must think about those individuals who need us, our unique giftings and ways that we reflect and, and show Jesus, who need us to be there. Right? We must not think about community of faith simply in how much we need others, but how much they need us. How God may use our words, our testimony, our presence, our insights from the study of the word to encourage and strengthen our fellow brothers and sisters. We give ourselves to the gospel and to God's word and to community, and we do all of this in increasing prayer, praying as the apostles cried out to Jesus, Lord, increase our faith. 
Let us pray, begging and pleading with God to make this truth and these realities real to our hearts. Let us come before him with humble confession and repentance. Let us pray, Father, we have been foolish. Father, I have stopped hearing and I am so prone to foolishness. I've stopped believing. I have turned that my acceptance with you by faith through the spirit and I've turned to trust in myself and in my flesh. Father, help me to hear in faith who Jesus is and all that he's done for me in the gospel. I want ears to hear, Father. I want to hear your word. I want to hear your promises. I want to hear your gospel. And I trust that in this believing, the spirit will be at work for your glory and for my joy, causing me to reflect on Christ, magnify Christ, make much of him. I want to, just as I received Christ Jesus as my Lord, to continue my life in him, being rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as we are taught and overflowed with thankfulness in him. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.